in Massachusetts, 1788, Adoniram Judson was born. His father was a minister, but Judson did not grow up as a Christian. Rather, he became a deist, largely due to the influence of a, a deist friend of his in college named Jacob Eames. But Judson's conversion to Christ was largely due to that same deist friend. After college, Judson traveled around to experience life. And one night he found himself in an inn and he was given a room next to that of a dying man. And all night long he was kept up by the moans and groans of this man who was in agony. And he was chilled by the thought of what comes after death. In the morning, Judson asked, the clerk about the man next door and found out that he had indeed passed away in the night. But Judson was not prepared for what came next. He was told that the man who passed away was named Jacob Eames. It was his old friend, the one who had led him away from the faith in college, who is now dead and lost forever. And the shock of this drove Judson back to the Lord after he realized he was just as lost Judson gave his life to Christ and immediately dedicated himself to his master's service. His dreams of personal fame were over and he set out to become a missionary. And so in 1812, after being married for just seven days, he and his wife set sail for India, traveled halfway around the world. And when they got there, they weren't let in. They were rejected by the East India Company. They didn't want Christians entering and messing with their links with the Hindus and Muslims. You can imagine the fear and the frustration they felt after sailing halfway across the world, only to have the door slammed in their face. But in God's providence, as they fell back from the shut door of India, they fell right through the open door of Burma. No one at that time had really thought about going to Burma. There was not a single Christian there. There were no missionary contacts there. They had no friends there. But Judson and his wife went anyway. This road was not easy. They encountered trial after trial. Their newborn son died after eight months. They were plagued by all all of the idolatry surrounding them. And there were no converts. Year after year, they ministered the gospel, but no one believed It took six long, disheartening years before they had their first convert. And after 12 years of service there, there were 18 believers total. But things were about to get worse. In 1824, the Anglo-Burmese War broke out and Judson was imprisoned, thought to be a British spy. He suffered unspeakable conditions, barely made it out alive a few years later when he was released. But shortly thereafter, his wife died, a victim of stress and disease. And then six months later, their second child died. So Judson was now all alone in a foreign country. The year was 1826. This story is not over, but just so far... What do you think? What's your response to this man's life? Most would say that this is sad. This is pathetic. I mean, how meaningless. What a waste of life. Who would do that? I mean, just think he could have had such a nice, peaceful, prosperous life in America. But he traded that for what? Great suffering and a few converts. Judson and his wife gave their lives away, seemingly for nothing, making just no impact. And there are many missionaries and pastors like this. The world would call them failures. They never see any fruit. They never see a big harvest. How discouraging is that? That makes you question your mission. Are you you doing the right thing? Is this even worth it? Why not just throw in the towel and enjoy a nice life? And many have. And even if you're not in the pulpit, you may sense the same discouragement in the pews. The church today doesn't seem like it's advancing, but retreating. There are fewer true converts, and the number of true Christians is on steady decline. Once good churches have turned to the prosperity gospel or given in to the sexual revolution, and speaking of, the the culture war has been lost. We're in a post-Christian society now. 
And so it's easy for Christians to be discouraged by this. You might wonder, is this it? Is this really God's plan for his kingdom? Shouldn't things be better than this? Shouldn't things be different? It feels like the true church is falling throughout the world while, while a wicked, godless generation rises. Do you ever find yourself thinking about these things and then do you get discouraged or dejected by the current state of affairs of, of the church in the world today? Well, let me tell you that you shouldn't. I mean, granted, we would not be happy about all state of affairs of the church today, but it's no call for discouragement. Why not? Because things are going exactly according to plan. God's plan for his kingdom is right on track. Do you realize that? You might be thinking like, wait, how can that be? If, if, if all of this today is part of God's kingdom plan, it sounds like a bad plan. But no, it's not. You're just fixated on the present. You forget the past. You can't see the future. Realize there was once a time when 11 disciples thought all was lost because they saw their master there hanging on a tree. And talk about discouraging. Like throw in the towel. It's over. He's dead. It's mission failure. I mean, if this is God's plan, it, it has to be the wrong plan. It has to be a, a bad plan. But no, it's not. It's not over. Just, just wait until the third day and you'll see that there's still glory to come. God will change things. And the same is true today. If you find yourself discouraged by how the world looks, just wait. Because God's kingdom is progressing. It is expanding and it is coming, even if you can't tell. And if you don't get this, then you need to hear a word from, from our Lord, just as the Jews of his day did. For they too had expectations of the kingdom, but they were wrong. And they too subscribed to myths or illusions about God's kingdom, but, but they were wrong. And Jesus set them straight. He told them the kingdom was not coming the, the way they expected. It was not going to take the course they expected. It was not going to look like they expected. Things were going to be different. They needed to get this straight. Otherwise, they were going to miss out. I mean, the king of the kingdom was standing right there before them. And they were in danger of rejecting him. And this is why Jesus revealed many unexpected truths of the kingdom of God. And here we are 2,000 years later, and those same truths are just as relevant as ever. God's kingdom is still not working and growing and expanding as most people expect, Christians even. And if you find yourself discouraged or downcast by the state of the church today, it sounds like you too need to be set straight. It sounds like you too could use some reminders on, on just what the Lord is up to with his church in this age. And we get a lot of those reminders from our Lord himself in the gospels. And we're going to focus on one of them in one passage this morning. It's found in Mark chapter four. So you can take your Bibles and, and turn there now to Mark chapter four. Mark 4 records several parables Jesus taught. And through them, as with all the parables, he's teaching on the kingdom. He's revealing mysteries of the kingdom to those who have ears to hear. And this is a message we still need to hear because God's kingdom might not be what you expect. It might not unfold like you expect. It might not come like you expect. Do you know what God's plan is for his expanding kingdom. Do you know what you should be doing in light of this? What does God expect of you when it comes to his, his kingdom? Today, we're going to find out in Mark 4, most give all their attention to the parable of the soils, the longest or at least the most prominent parable Jesus taught. But don't overlook the others. There are, there are two other little seed parables here that we're going to pay attention to instead. These are short they're kind of blinking, you'll miss them, teachings. But if you slow down and, and pay attention, you find incredibly important and encouraging instruction on the kingdom and God's plans for his kingdom in this age. That's something we need to hear. 
So let's do that now, specifically Mark 4, 26 through 32. And we're going to try and discover two unexpected revelations about how God's kingdom grows in this age. Two unexpected revelations about how God's kingdom grows in this age with hopes that you'll be encouraged and even motivated uh, to be a part of what God is doing with his kingdom in this age. And so we find first, the kingdom grows incomprehensibly. The kingdom grows incomprehensibly. Let's look at the first parable. It's the parable of the seed, 26 through 29. Follow along. It's talking about Jesus and says, He was saying, The kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil. And he goes to bed at night and gets up by day. And the seed sprouts and grows. How? He himself does not know. The soil produces crops by itself. First the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. But when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Here we have another Yet another parable using the analogy of sowing seed, just like the parable of the soils, just like the parable of the wheat and the tares. All three parables start the same way. There's a guy and he's sowing seed. But after that, these three parables diverge. Here, you get the most unexpected twist of them all. After this guy sows the seed, what does he do? Goes to sleep. In verse 27, he goes to bed at night, gets up by day, and the seed sprouts and grows. How? He himself does not know. This cycle of waking and sleeping is in the present tense, meaning it's repeated. At first, this farmer is is very active in the work of sowing the seed. But after that work is done, he goes about other business. He sleeps, he wakes, does other things. Days go by, he hasn't touched the field. But the seed is working And it's growing in a way unknown to him. And ever since we moved up here, Angel and I got into some, you know, hobby farming, basically. Now, I remember when we first started, built some raised beds, planted some lettuce, peas, cucumbers, all by seed, wondering if anything would actually happen. Days later, we came back and the whole thing was filled with all these sprouts everywhere. It's pretty amazing, especially for a couple of city slickers who don't know anything about this, but... You know, we didn't really do anything. It just threw some seed in the ground and watered it. And in a way unknown to us, the seed was doing a lot. It was at work. And likewise for this farmer, as his work of sowing ends, so the seed's work of growing begins. You know, farming, call this process germination. Seeds are dormant. They're not living per se, but they have the potential for life within them. And you plant them in the ground, add some water, and they spring to life. They can be dormant for years, but then come back alive. The seed busts out of its shell, sends a little shoot upward as if it knows which way is up. How this works, how all this happens, farmer doesn't really know. And again, verse 28, the soil produces crops by itself. First the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. No, it's a seed does this by itself in the good soil. The word in the Greek here is automatos, which I'm sure you can guess is where we get our word automatic from. You know, despite the farmer's lack of comprehension, the seed still works and sprouts and grows. And eventually it bears fruit. Once the seed is sown and comes to life, a process begins that will eventually result in a harvest. And that's verse 29. But when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. You know, this farmer who was obviously sowing wheat by the description in verse 28, he's after one thing, a harvest. He's not planting a, a flower garden. He wants this harvest. And when the time comes, he springs back into action. His field was largely untouched by him after sowing But when the time is right, he will harvest the field. And that's it. That's the parable of the seed. It's short. It's very simple. It's only found in Mark's gospel. It's the only parable that's unique to Mark's gospel. 
But for these reasons, it's often overlooked. But there's a valuable lesson here. Jesus was not just giving a lesson on botany. And so we have to ask, as with all the parables, what is its interpretation? Well, the the skeleton key that unlocks all the parables is understanding their connection to the kingdom of God. You can't miss the fact that Jesus is using the parables to teach about God's coming kingdom. This is how he introduces all the parables. The kingdom of God is like leaven. The kingdom of God is like a treasure hidden in the field. The kingdom of God is like a merchant seeking fine pearls and so on. In each case, he's revealing something about the kingdom of God that was previously unknown or misunderstood. So if you're going to understand any of the parables, you need to know at least a little about this kingdom of God. Do you know what Jesus means by the kingdom? Could you give a, a concise biblical definition of the kingdom? What, what is the kingdom of God? Let me help you with that. In short, the kingdom of God is simply God's rule over his creation. You really can boil it down to as simple as that. It's God's rule over his creation. In one sense, God always rules. He created and sustains the universe. But in another sense, in this world, sin and Satan rule. Several times, scripture calls the devil the God of this world for now. After the fall, the expression of God's rule over his creation was thwarted. By sin and Satan, and then all mankind joined in this rebellion against God's rule, and that's not good. Now, look, God could have just wiped everyone out, everyone who opposed his rule, just take them out. He could have very quickly and immediately and easily reestablished his rule over this world. There's no problem. He could do that any moment. But that wasn't his plan. Instead, he determined to allow this rebellion for a time that he might bring glory to himself in redemption. I mean, after all, even the fall itself was part of his sovereign plan. But on that day, on that same day, God began or or set in motion this plan to restore his rightful rule over creation and redeem fallen man at the same time. And this is now what the Bible looks forward to when it speaks of the future kingdom of God. The kingdom is that future time when sin and Satan no longer rule over this world. But God and his will rules over the world. It's just like Jesus taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done where? On earth as it is in heaven. So we look forward to that time, to the kingdom. And in scripture, God has been progressively revealing his plans for that kingdom. Nowhere is that plan revealed more than in and through Jesus. You know, in the first Adam, Adam was supposed to be the mediator of God's rule over this world. But he failed. So God provided another mediator of his kingship, a second Adam, a perfect man who is also perfect God, is one to rule over restored creation. And that's Jesus, the Christ, God himself. He's the king of kings. This also explains why when Jesus came the first time, he had a lot to say about how God was going to, in his plan, go about restoring his rightful rule, the exercise of his rule over this world. But Jesus revealed plenty of twists in the story. You see, the Jews, God's old covenant people, they were looking forward to this kingdom. But they had some things wrong. They had many misconceptions about the king and the kingdom and kingdom citizens. So Jesus sets them straight. And in the parables especially, he's dispelling myths and revealing mysteries of the kingdom for those who have ears to hear. For instance, in the parable of the soils, we learn that the kingdom will face resistance and opposition. No Jew 
was expecting that. Also, later, Jesus reveals to his disciples that he, the, the king of the kingdom, had to die. It's like, wait, wait, what? The, the king has to die? Yeah, Jesus has to die to defeat sin and Satan. And so, so to bring about a, a populated kingdom that anyone might be granted entrance into this kingdom, the king had to die for his people. So needless to say, Jesus was dropping bombshell after bombshell, telling them what the path to this restored kingdom would actually look like. They thought it was arriving instantly with the Messiah, but it wasn't. I mean, to be sure, through his atonement, Jesus brought about the restoration of God's rule in the heart of redeemed men. In that regard, we're witnessing the kingdom now, you could say. But the full expression of God's rule over creation is still future. And now we come back to the parable of the seed. And Jesus here is revealing what? Well, in a simple sense, that the kingdom will grow. And God's not going to snap his fingers, judge all unbelievers, and initiate his rule on earth. That will happen, but not until the, the second coming of Christ. In this age, though, the restoration of his rule or his kingdom will be gradual. It will be slow and steady. And it will do this all by itself. That's the parable of the seed in a way you may not know, in a way you may not understand, in a way you may not even perceive. God's kingdom, it's going to grow. And it will do this all by itself because there's power in the seed. Jesus does not interpret this parable for us, but it shares many common elements with the parable of the soils and the parable of the wheat and the tares, which Jesus does interpret. And so it's rather clear. His subject is the growth of the kingdom of God. There's no doubt about that. And as always, the kingdom grows through the seed. And the seed, like the other parables, is none other than the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel message of Christ's death and resurrection is the means God has chosen to save and transform sinners. And when that gospel goes out, like the parable of the soils, it falls on the soil of men's hearts. And there, as God wills, it can implant, bringing new life to the soul. And the seed of the gospel can lay dormant in someone's heart or mind for years. But on its own, in a way that's imperceptible to us, it sprouts and then it grows. And so a person is saved and they enter the kingdom. You know, the basics of this parable are not hard to understand. Everything Jesus teaches here is, as always, explained later in the epistles. How are people saved and made citizens of this kingdom? Well, it's by the power of the gospel. But there is a special emphasis in this little parable. And that's on, you could say, the incomprehensibility of this work. I mean, how does this happen? You know, the exact inner working mechanics, we don't know. that The farmer doesn't know. Why do some people believe and others don't? How is it you can share the gospel with a hundred nice, friendly people and none of them believe? But then you can share the gospel with one hard-hearted opponent. The last person you think would ever become a Christian, but he instantly breaks down and comes to faith. How do you explain that? There's a level of incomprehensibility to the work of the gospel in transforming people. That's okay, though. It's not always for us to know how and when and why God works. That's, that's God's work. We don't always know the, the reasonings behind his will. What we are assured of here, though, is that the seed will work. The seed is going to work to produce a crop by itself. It has power in itself to come to life, to bring life. And that power is, is irrespective of the farmer. He doesn't have to know how it works. It's not up to him anyway. He can't make the seed come to life. It's just going to happen by itself. You know, in one sense, this can be very frustrating because as a Christian, like you know the joy of the Lord. You want people around you to believe. 
You don't want all your friends and family members to perish. Instead, you want them to see what you see and, and come to newness of life. It doesn't always work out that way. They think you're crazy or you're dumb. And sometimes you wish you could just kind of shake them and open their eyes and make them believe, but, but you can't. You don't have that power. Bringing new life to dead sinners is just not in your department. And in a sense, that can be frustrating. But in another sense, this can be a very freeing and encouraging truth. That kingdom growth, ultimately, it's not up to you. But thank God for that. I mean, if it were up to you and me to save people, no one would be saved. Because we just don't have the power to call dead people to life. But, but God can. This is his sovereign work. Just leave that to him. He's sovereign in salvation. After all, how are people born again or brought to new life? Like John 1.13 says, uh, for example, not by blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This is God's work. Trust him to do that. Jesus said, I'll build my church. He meant it. He came to redeem and elect people, and he's not going to lose a single one. He, he will assure that his kingdom is populated as he sees fit. But this is meant to be a great comfort and assurance. He will get it done. So trust him. Now, when people hear this, though, there's always some who respond and, and say like, okay, well, I, I guess that means we don't have to evangelize. Right? It's his will. He'll take care of it all. We don't have to evangelize, right? Wrong. God is sovereign in salvation, but he's also made us responsible. He's sovereign over the ends, but he's also sovereign over the means. And he has sovereignly determined to make us the means of the gospel going out. And listen, if no one ever shared the gospel, God would raise up stones to preach. But he calls believers to enter into the joy and the privilege of partaking in his work. And so what's he given us to do? Sow the seed. That's it. That's the responsibility he's entrusted to us. That's your job to take that seed and and scatter it far and wide. I'll tell you what though, this parable goes a long way in clarifying our work. That we are sowers, not savers. The power of God is in his word. We're just to deliver it. The gospel is like a caged lion. We're just to let it out. That, that's all we do. But that's great. You know what that means is, yes, we're going to share the gospel. We're going to labor hard to help someone understand. We'll contend with them. But ultimately, it's not up to us to convince or convert people. God will do that in a way incomprehensible to us. As for you, you just have to be faithful to sow the seed. This parable clarifies our work, what God expects of us. Also, it also assures our work. Again, some people like to suggest that if God is sovereign in salvation, it nullifies evangelism. But actually, the exact opposite is true. Because God is sovereign in salvation, it establishes evangelism. It makes evangelism possible. It means evangelism will work. And when the seed goes out, it's going to work by itself. It's going to grow. How? Why? Which ones? God knows. But rest assured, because there's power in the gospel, it will work. And that's meant to give us great assurance and confidence in our our responsibility of evangelism as we trust God. So what should you do? Share the gospel with someone, sow the seed, and then what? Go to sleep. Sleep easy. Don't worry. Yeah, you might need to sow and re-sow and re-sow the gospel in someone's life. You might need to share the gospel with the same person 20 times. And then, yeah, water it in with prayer. But, but apart from that, just go to sleep. It's in God's hands. He will do his work as he sees fit. You can proceed with confidence, though. God will work. He's placed his power in the seed. And therefore, there will be a harvest. Some will 
come to life and believe. You're meant to find comfort and confidence in that. Even when the the crop seems small one year, don't worry. That's not your concern. You just focus all your efforts on being faithful. God will bring about the harvest as he sees fit. And speaking of harvest, verse 29 mentions a harvest. And the language is eschatological, meaning it refers to the end of the age. When the number of the redeemed is complete, God will harvest them and, and usher in the fullness of his kingdom. Jesus taught the same thing in the parable of the wheat and the tares. This is only confirmed in Revelation fourteen fifteen. Speaking of that time, an angel came out of the temple, crying out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, said, put in your sickle and reap for the hour to reap has come because the harvest of the earth is ripe. What we find for now though, is that the kingdom grows incomprehensibly, but it grows. You can count on that. You can take courage in that. Don't ever get discouraged by a small crop and don't get puffed up by a bumper crop. God will work through the seed according to his will. You leave that to him. As for you, just focus on faithfulness and not results. Now we need to take this a step further, but before we do that, let's add in the second parable here. And once you get the parable of the seed, the next parable, the parable of the mustard seed, falls right into place. Let's go to verse 30 now. And we're going to find the second unexpected revelation about how God's kingdom grows in this age. Secondly, the kingdom starts insignificantly. The kingdom starts insignificantly. Let's read 30 through 32 in Mark 4. And Jesus said, how shall we picture the kingdom of God? Or or by what parable shall we present it? It's like a mustard seed, which when sown upon the soil, though it's smaller than all the seeds that are upon the soil, yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and forms large branches so that the birds of the air can nest under its shade. If you thought we were done with the seed parables, well, no, there's one more. This time Jesus uses a specific seed, the mustard seed. You know, crush them together, add some water, you get mustard. But the parable is not about the condiment, but the seed itself. And the point here, it's pretty obvious. A contrast is being formed. Mustard seeds are, are small, really small. They were the smallest seeds known to the Palestinian farmer. And they're so small that if you're not careful, you'll lose them. I mentioned earlier how we started doing a little hobby gardening up here. And we also, back in the day, we planted some mescaline, which is like an assortment of lettuce. And the seeds are incredibly small. There's probably a thousand in the packet. You'd confuse them with a speck of dirt if you didn't know better. And mustard seeds are like this. You could probably pinch a couple hundred just between your two fingers. Only difference is mustard seeds are round. That makes it even worse. They'll, they'll just roll right out of your hand and nothing you can do about it. But amazingly, even more than the lettuce seed, that the tiny little mustard seed will grow into this huge shrub, maybe 15 feet tall. Now, it's no cedar, but that's not the point of the parable. The highlight here is just this contrast. Look at how something so incredibly small turned into something so large. I mean, if you didn't know better and you judged a book by its cover, you would totally disregard the mustard seed. I mean, you'd say, well, what could really come from this puny seed? It's so insignificant. But just sow it, put it in the ground, and wait and see. It will rise, become a plant so large that the birds of the air will come and and nest in its branches. As Jesus says in verse 30, He's again not talking about plants. This is a parable of the kingdom. And as you now know, all these parables relate to us something about the kingdom. The parable of the mustard seed is no different. And it's one of the more obvious ones to interpret. Jesus is again talking about kingdom growth in this age. But here the big point is that it's going to start insignificantly. It's going to begin small. 
It'll be almost unrecognizable at first. But you would be foolish to disregard it because in time it will outdo the greatest kingdoms of the earth. Again, the Jews were expecting the kingdom to come immediately and with power, like a lightning bolt. When the Messiah would appear, he'd overthrow Rome. He'd bring his kingdom instantly. And really, Jesus should be using something like a a volcanic eruption to picture the coming kingdom. Not this kind of puny, slow-growing mustard seed. But they were mistaken. Now, don't get me wrong. There will be a day when the sign of the Son of Man will flash in the sky for all to see. And Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire. 2 Thessalonians 1.7 says. On that day, an angel will sound the trumpet and say this, Revelation 11.15, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he will reign forever and ever. That day is coming. It's just that the the Jews failed to realize that before that day in this age, God has other plans. God's going to first restore his rule in the hearts of men gradually, not in judgment by forcing all to bow the knee in submission, but in redemption, where the elect willingly bow the knee to the king in, in adoration. With this plan, God would first send the Messiah to die for his people, that he might seek and save that which was lost. And then God would spread out this work of applying salvation over centuries. And notably, God determined to start small. At first, only a few would believe. This was a big deal. It was very difficult for the Jews to grasp. I mean, surely everyone would follow the Messiah when he came, right? But this is not the case. Thousands followed Jesus, but thousands fell away. In the end, after his resurrection, how many true disciples did Jesus have? 1 Corinthians 15 says he appeared to 500. So after three years, he amassed a total of 500 followers. That's it. And there are 2 million people around Palestine at that time. He only managed 500. That, that's sad. You could draw more people with a concert. Again, looking at Jesus like the world does, you would think him a, a total failure. He didn't reach that many people. He never made it out of a small strip of land. But, you know, that's okay. That was the plan. The seed starts small. But the thing about seed is once it gets out, it's very hard to stop. You get something that grows like a weed, you will ha- it will be impossible to stop its spread. And so just one generation after Jesus, there's already a crop of thousands of believers all over the known world. The kingdom starts small. It begins insignificantly, but, but like the mustard seed, it has this power in itself to grow and bring about something greater. So what have we learned? We've learned that like the mustard seed, the kingdom will start insignificantly. But don't worry. Once that seed is unleashed, it it will take off. There will be no stopping its growth. God will see to it. And speaking of, like the seed in the soil, the kingdom will grow incomprehensibly. Not all is going to be able to make sense of the when, where, how, and why God's kingdom grows. But don't fear it. It's going to grow. God will see to it. Christ will build his church. His kingdom will come. And this knowledge of the kingdom we've received today calls for a response. Jesus was revealing these unexpected truths of the kingdom that he might elicit a response out of those who have ears to hear. And so then how are we supposed to respond and and live in light of what Jesus has said about how God's kingdom grows in this age? Well, as we finish our time, let me give you just two key responses. There's more, but let's just think about two key responses to the coming kingdom. First, be encouraged by what God is doing. Be encouraged 
by what God is doing. The key word here is, is God. This is God's kingdom. This is Christ's reign. He will accomplish that. God has all the power to do so. He's put his power in this gospel message, and when it goes out, it's going to accomplish God's will. Like Isaiah 55, 11 says, God's word never returns void, never comes back without accomplishing that which God desires, without succeeding in the matter for which it was sent. God's in control. He's on the throne. And though sin and Satan have marred his creation, God has not once panicked. And though this world completely rejects God and his rule over them, God has not once felt threatened. He's allowing an age of rebellion that he might rescue lost sheep from all the nations. You just have to trust him to do that work. But take courage. Even though the seed is small and you can't always see it working, it will. That's the great encouragement in all these parables. Even though the farmer doesn't really know how, doesn't always see it, the kingdom will grow because God is behind it. And let me tell you, this message really encourages, especially when things look bleak. Put yourself in the shoes of the early church. There are times it was illegal to be a Christian. Rome was bearing down at them, on them. Believers were persecuted, beaten, often killed. And then you had a bunch of false teachers drawing people away from the true church. I mean, is this really what Jesus had in mind for the growth of the kingdom? Yes, that's exactly what God had in mind. He's going to bring about the expansion of his kingdom on the earth in ways you don't expect and anticipate. But he will see to it that his kingdom is populated and Christ will come. Remember the mysteries of the kingdom, which Jesus always taught using paradox. Strength comes through weakness. Power through humility. Victory through defeat. Life through death. The early church faced so much, but as long as the seed was out there, as long as the seed was unleashed and sown, it would work. Lives would be changed. Citizens would be added to the kingdom. And that's exactly what happened. And it's still true today. That work is, is going on. And if you ever feel things look bleak, just, just remember the seed. And then remember the, the mustard seed. The kingdom's coming. Though it may be incomprehensible to you. Though it may seem insignificant. God, he's, he's still at work in this world. Do you believe that? Even now, as nations rise and fall. As the spiritual landscape of our own nation changes. God's at work. Maybe in God's providence, the harvest in America is slowing down. But you know, that seed is finally reaching places in Africa and China. Their harvest is just beginning. That should encourage you. In fact, we always have a reason to take courage. I mean, so long as the seed is out there, God's going to work it out to bring about his kingdom in ways you might never expect. It leads to a second response. Be a part of what God is doing. Be encouraged by what God is doing and then be a part of what God is doing. You can spend all your days doing nothing but worrying about the future. There are endless things to worry about and how bad things are and how bad things might get. You could stop worrying and start sowing. And what do you think God wants you to do? He's given us in the church a commission. Make disciples of all the nations. Make his name known. Preach the word. Proclaim the excellencies of him who called you. This is the work God has given the church to do. He doesn't need us. but He's given us the blessing of participating in his sovereign work to reach the nations. So do that. Tell people about the good news of Christ's death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins, that all who believe in him will not perish, but have enter everlasting life and enter the kingdom. I mean, look, a, a farmer will never see a harvest if he just stands there looking at the field. 
He can do other things. He can water and weed and till, but if he doesn't actually get around to sowing the seed, nothing's going to happen. And so what are you waiting for? Get out there, scatter the seed, share the gospel. Are you waiting for a better time? The time is always right now, according to God. So evangelize the lost. Think of a loved one, a friend, a coworker. You've always been putting off, sharing with them. What are you waiting for? You need to stop wishing and just get to sowing. Because until you share the gospel, well, you can be sure of one thing. Nothing's going to happen, at least as far as your participation is concerned. But get to sowing because there's power in the seed. And it can't come to life until it is sown. Romans 1.16, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first, also to the Greek. But you think about that, the gospel, it's the power of God for salvation. You know what that means? This is good news for us. It means you don't have to be clever or wise. You don't have to be a good public speaker or a good storyteller. You don't have to be powerful and you don't have to manipulate people. All you have to do is just share the gospel. That's it. Just tell people about the good news of Jesus. The power of God's word will do the rest in bringing them to new life. Just have confidence in the seed and then just get it out there. Share it, sow it, pray, and then go to sleep. Just rest easy. Your work is done. That You repeat that, so our work is, is never done. But beyond that, God will build his church. He will bring about the growth of his kingdom. You just be faithful to be a part of what he's doing by sowing the word. The year was 1826 and Adoniram Judson had been in prison for years, beaten, tortured. His wife had died. His children had died. He's alone in Burma, a fiercely anti-Christian country. Over 12 years, he'd only known 18 converts The world would call this a fool's errand, a total waste of a life. But Judson personally had experienced the power of the seed of the gospel in his own life. He knew it's just a matter of time, and that's God's time, before before that seed came to life in Burma. And indeed, God was not finished with this sower. You know, that same Anglo-Burmese war that cost him years in prison and eventually and essentially the lives of his family members. That same war resulted in a pure open door for the gospel in Burma thereafter. And for the next 24 years, he remained there, continuing the hard but good work of sowing the seed. And over time, the seed worked. God worked. As he always does when his word goes forth in his timing. When Judson began his work in Burma, his goal was to just translate the Bible into Burmese and plant one church with a hundred people. That was his goal. And by the time he died, he had translated the Bible into Burmese. But he planted a hundred churches with 8,000 believers. And today, there are about 2.5 million Christians in Burma, or it's now known as Myanmar. How did this happen? Well, for one, Judson was faithful. He was that faithful farmer and poured his life out into the simple work of sowing the seed. Just, just getting the gospel of Jesus Christ out to the nations. And those are the people God uses. He picks them up and uses them. To build his church. And God, of course, was faithful. The seed went out. Once again, it started small. It progressed insignificantly and incomprehensibly. But in God's timing, a harvest came. It still continues to this day. You need to let this encourage you and then motivate you to do the same thing in your own life, your own community. You don't have to go to Burma. You could. But start in your own neighborhood. You know, as our own nation turns more and more away from the rule of God, don't be discouraged. 
You've not yet seen how God is going to work out his plans to restore and bring about his rule in this world. You just focus on your part. And all the more so as the days grow darker, just scatter the seed of Christ's gospel all around you, trusting God to cause the growth. And let's pray together. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. And we pray that your kingdom will come, that your will will be done on on earth as it is in heaven. That's our desire. We see this world, Lord, and it it certainly can scare us, frighten us, lead us to worry, fear, doubt. Things are changing. This landscape is growing darker in many ways that we're familiar with and comfortable with in America. Things are changing. The writing's on the wall, but at the same time, Lord, we need these reminders, these truths from the Lord himself about what you're doing in this age. You've not promised an instant renewal of this world. That, that's when Christ comes back. This age might be filled with times of darkness and persecution where, where your work seems small and imperceptible, even, even on the decline. But we are reminded and encouraged. We drive a, a deeper encouragement from your word, which assures us, you know, you're at work. The seed is out. The gospel of Jesus Christ is complete and now being made known. And it's going to do its work. It will accomplish exactly what you desire, Lord. And that gives us all the encouragement we need. We can, we can just go to sleep. We can rest easy in that knowledge. You, your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven in your timing. And for our part then, may we simply just focus with a confidence, a renewed assurance. We just focus on the work you've given us to do sow the seed and get the gospel of Jesus Christ out. Help us to know the gospel ourselves, to to meditate on it, to be so full of it that when we just run into people, it spills out. May we be those characterized by, by sowing the seed and just representing the name of Christ to the world. That still is the only hope our nation has and all the nations have to enter your kingdom when it comes. We pray Christ does come quickly but help us to be faithful and found faithful until then. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.